I say that and then I come back up here. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good thing I'm no longer paranoid, you know. <laughs> we got any Alan's back here? Oh. Sorry. Two of you? Outnumbered. <laughs> we talked about sex last week. I don't know what you're doing here this week. If we heard what we're talking about, that, you know. The, uh, my name is John. I am an alcoholic. Uh, did the bus come in? Where's the bus? Are the people on the bus? No, no treatment center here tonight. <laughs> I, tell you, I tell you, I uh, I'm glad to be here. And uh, this, I was, I was thinking when we were about those seats. Uh, I was at a conference. I was I went to Manitoba, Canada. This is just a couple years ago. And they were really fanatical about that because people would save seats. They were in this hotel and they were limited seating and and uh, they just really got irate about that. And that whole trip was bizarre to me because I, <laughs> and this is true, those of you going to international want to pay attention to this because I flew into, into Canada and I'm going through the customs there, you know, and the guy says, uh, what are you doing in Canada? I said, well, I'm going to a convention. What kind of convention? Alcoholics Anonymous Convention. He said, okay, so do you need to go over to the gal, have her check your bag? So I went over there. First time I'd ever had that happen. And she's looking at my stuff, and she said, uh, what are you doing in Canada? So I'm going to a convention. What kind of convention? Alcoholics Anonymous convention. And she says, uh, <clears throat> you ever been arrested? <laughs> <laughs> Now, what does that mean to y'all? <laughs> I mean, does she mean like arrested, arrested? Or just arrested? <laughs> well, to me, that means like felony arrested. Okay? That's what that means to me. And I never had been felony arrested. arrested. So I said no. And uh, she said, well, we'll find out. So she goes back to this glass room, this room surrounded by, and, and I see her in there on the computer, and then all of a sudden the computer starts spitting out paper. <laughs> so she calls her boss in, they look at the paper, they look up at me, and they look at the paper. She finally comes down and she says, uh, well, it came back positive. <laughs> I said, hell, I haven't taken a blood, blood test. What are you talking about, positive? <laughs> and she said... You have two, and she called them FBI files. I said, really? She said, yes, you have a DWI in 1979 and another one in 1981. I said, oh, yeah. I said, but uh, that's why I'm here. Said, you kind of get that, uh, those DWIs and going to Alcoholics Anonymous Convention, you kind of see the relationship there. And she said... Uh, well, why did you lie to me? I said, well, I didn't lie. She said, you were arrested twice. And I said, well, that's just drunk stuff. I said, uh, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago was a misdemeanor. You know, you paid $250 and, and that was it. And she said, well, we take it very seriously in Canada and you're an undesirable. 
And I said, really? She says, yes, you can't come in. I said, what do I got to do? She says, you got to go back. I said, okay. She said, you can post a $200 fine. And I said, I'm not going to do that. She said, you got to go back. Just then a guy comes in, another, another customs guy comes in and says, is there John already in here? And I said, yeah. And he said, there's some guys waiting for you out front. And I said, I can't come in. And she says, he's an undesirable. <laughs> and then she says, do you think they'll post the fine? And I said, I don't know. I'm not going to ask them. And so she goes out pretty soon. They all come marching back. And then they got 200 Canadian dollars. I guess it's like $130 American or something like that. And they said, they're posting the fine. They said, there's 2,000 people going to be really pissed if we don't take you. So, so they posted the fine, and, and uh, I apologized to the guys. I said, I'm sorry about that. They they, uh, they said, nah. I said, well, it's been a couple hundred extra bucks from you guys from the States coming up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I spoke at that conference Saturday, and I said, this is give a lot. I told them a story. I said, this gives newcomers a lot of hope, you know. Come in. Work the steps, stay sober 20 years, and then you have a whole nation call you undesirable. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do for an international, but it is. It's a, it's a, what they've done is they've upgraded the law in Canada to make DWIs a felony offense, and you can't get into the country without paying this $200 deal. And, uh, and they got international. I was having dinner with uh, uh, one of the trustees. Uh, couple, three weeks ago in, uh, at a conference, and uh, well, I was talking. I said, what are they going to do about that? And he was, they were totally aware of that, and he said, they're, uh, I guess they're just going to have to pay the fine. He said, we're aware of that, and Canada won't budge on it. So if you go up there, don't tell them you're going to AA. <laughs> you know, just tell them you're going to see some friends. And uh, here I'm telling them why, you know. <laughs> I've been back since then a couple times to conferences, and they asked me, what are you doing? I said, I'm just going to visit some friends. And they never asked me if I've been arrested, so I don't volunteer. Now, here's a growth. This will tell you how I've grown in 20 years. When they told me I had two uh, FBI folders for DWI, I didn't have to correct them. <laughs> I have to say, no, I've got four. <laughs> So that's a lot of growth. Uh, <laughs> you know, so far we, we, uh, we've covered, uh, I don't know how we're going to do this. We got, uh, the first week we talked about the first step and, uh, how our, you know, we're powerless over alcohol and our lives unmanageable. The second week we talked about the solution to that problem. Step one identifies the problem. Step two is the solution to the problem. Step three is where we turn our will and life over to the solution we found in step two. And then we start cleaning up our side of the street in four and five. And then we change in six and seven. Change in the next place in four and five, it changes in six and seven. And then we got to exercise that change. Because the only way you know if you've changed is if you exercise that change. And we do that through making those amends. And to amends means to change. Okay, if you amend something, you change it. If you amend a document, you change the document. And... Uh, so we're going to change our behavior. It makes no sense to make amends and keep the behavior the way it was. And so I, I out of our my inventory came this list of uh, amends for step eight that I had. And I met with my sponsor. I had my list of amends that I'm going to make. And he looked at him and he finally turned it over. And he said, you know, he said, John, he said, whenever you start thinking your life is manageable, 
first half of step one, I want you to pull this list out and look at it. Because that's how well you manage your life. And that's really true. When I manage my life, I end up with a whole bunch of amends to me. You know, when I'm not, when God's in control, I'm letting God run my life, I don't have any amends to make. And uh, I don't know how to make amends. And so the best thing I can tell you to do is talk to your sponsor before you make any amends. I owed a huge amend to my wife. Uh, when we got divorced, she had custody of the kids. I had two children, and she got custody. I'm supposed to pay this child support. And then right after we got divorced, man, I'm living in Seattle, and she calls to tell me that she was getting married. And I said, we've only been divorced two months. She's, you've been living in Seattle a year and a half. You know, she says, I'm getting married. And I said, okay. So I'm sending this. And she married a guy just the opposite of me. You know, they always do that. All my wives marry up somebody just the opposite of me. <laughs> you know, I guess they find out what they don't want, you know. <laughs> she married this professional bodybuilder. You know, he's one of these guys, you know, that can't clap. It's so big. And uh, so I'm paying my child support. I'm sending that off. And I later moved to Reno. And I'm in Reno. And, and the child support was supposed to get there on the 5th. And, well, on the 6th, he called. She did. He called me on the 6th. And wanted to know where the child support was. And so I told him what he'd do with that child support. <laughs> you know? He lived in a different state. I could talk to him like that. <laughs> he pinched my head just like that. Uh, so I got big resentment. And I just quit paying child support. You know, I didn't pay child support for three and a half years. And I owed this huge amount. And I told you last week how I moved to Dallas. I'm working with my sponsor. Took my inventory, and we got this amend list going on. And I don't know how to make that amend. I'm scared to death too because this is against the law. Do not pay child support. They, they lock you up. And uh, I also had not talked to my children for three and a half years because if you're not paying child support, I'm not going to call them and go you know, get go by and see them. They were living in Utah, and I'm out here in Reno now, or Dallas. And uh, so I hadn't talked to my children, hadn't sent them a letter, had no communication with my children or my ex-wife for three and a half years. And I had all this amends. My sponsor said, well, he said, you go home tonight and you pray, you write them a letter. You don't just go show up on their doorstep. Uh, they're doing fine the way they are, but you write them a letter, and you pray, and God will tell you what to write. And you become willing to, to do whatever she wants you to do about, about that back payment. So I went home, and I prayed, and I wrote this letter. And in the letter, I admitted I was an alcoholic. I'd never done that before. And I also told her, because I'd heard that a lot of, a lot of times the, the uh, significant other, the alcoholic will blame themselves a lot for the guys drinking. And I told her, I said, you know, it's not your fault. You didn't make me an alcoholic. You couldn't have stopped it. Nothing you could have done would have changed it. And I regret that I'm an alcoholic. And uh, and I owe you this money. And I don't have it. I don't have any money at all. I'm, I'm making four bucks an hour. But uh, I want to pay you a little bit. I want to start paying my child support now. And then whatever you want to do, I'll do. If you want me to wait and get like, uh, you know, five hundred, a thousand dollars at a time together and send it off, and we keep track of it till we catch up, or if you want me to uh, to just double the payments when I can, that'll be harder to keep track of. Or my sponsor suggested one thing he ended up having to do was he uh, he said maybe I extend the payment for three and a half years instead of paying until they're eighteen pay till they're 
you know, 21 and a half. And I thought, well, I, maybe I'll do that. I, so I included that option to her. And then I said, but whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And I closed that letter and said, if there's anything I can do to make your life easier, all you have to do is ask. And that's a scary thing to say. Because, you know, she could write back and say, listen, what we want you to do is we want you to sign these papers so that Dave can adopt the kids because we never want to see you again. You know? That'll make our life easier. We want you out of here forever. And if that's what she wanted to do, I, I was willing to do whatever she wanted to do. And I sent that letter off. In fact, I, I got through writing about midnight, and I put a stamp on it, went down to the mailbox and dropped it in the mailbox because I was afraid I wouldn't have the courage. If I slept on it overnight, I'd change my mind wouldn't mail it. So I mailed it off, and then uh, then you got that terrible you know, time between when you mail it and when you hear back from it. <laughs> it seemed like a month. It was really about a week. And I got a letter back from her in about a week, 10 days. We got a letter back. Open it up, and it was a great letter. Uh, she said how glad she was to hear from me. They didn't know where I was. See, I was pretty safe until I sent that letter. <laughs> because they didn't know where I was. They, last they heard, I was in Reno. Now I'm in Dallas. But once you know that letter, they know where you are, and that sheriff could deliver that letter, you know. <laughs> Here's a warrant. So uh, she said, well, glad to hear from you. Glad to hear you're okay. And, and uh, she threw out... Uh, some information about the kids and said, uh, you can do one thing to make my life easier. You can write the kids because they ask about you all the time. And we later agreed on how I ended up paying three and a half years longer on that amend to her and we paid that off. And the, uh, but I wrote the kids because I also had a terrible, terrible amend to make, I mean, I just, they were six and they were, you know, when we got divorced, my daughter was six and my boy was eight when we got divorced. Just seven, seven and five actually, when we got divorced. And I hadn't heard from them in three years. They hadn't heard from me in three years. And so I, I owed them a big amend. And I had to write them a letter. And I did the same thing. I wrote them a letter and in the letter I was very general. I explained that I'd been sick. I loved them. Sorry I haven't written you, but I've been sick and unable to. That's a true statement. And I said, but I, uh, I'm doing much better now. And I, I would promise you kids I'll write you every few weeks. And, uh, and we'll start staying in touch. And so we started writing back and forth. And I'd send them a letter every couple weeks. And then Christmas came. And when I sent off the child support, I asked for permission to call the kids on Christmas. And she wrote back and she said, that'd be fine. We'll be here Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. You can call them whichever time you want. I hadn't even called them. I'd just been writing letters back and forth to them. And she was sending me school stuff. We started to reestablish that relationship through the mail. And so we wrote, I would call them every other week. I'd send a letter one week and call them the next week. Send a letter a week and call them the next week. And uh, August, so it was the following August, from Christmas to August, We'd made plans to go out there and see him. And uh, so we flew out there and rented a car and pulled up and in the driveway. And the kids came running out of the house and jumped on me. And there was no, there wasn't one minute of adjustment or people learning, you know, trying to reacquaint themselves with each other and nothing awkward, like I'd been gone for the weekend. There wasn't anything awkward about it at all. Because we'd been writing letters back and forth for a year. And I've been talking to him since Christmas every other week. 
And it was just a one, that whole relationship with my children and my ex-wife has just been been reestablished and is, and is perfect today. In fact, I I, I like her ex-husband. You know, or her. I'm her ex-husband. <laughs> I like I like him too, but I I like I like her her husband a lot more than I like her. You know, she he's a really nice guy. He really is a nice guy. And they've been out here because my son lives in Arlington now, and uh, he's 26, single. <laughs> Good looking kid. No, he's he's 28. I'm he's 26 or 28, one of the two. <laughs> He's a mature 26, I guess. <laughs> He's a great kid. And that whole thing's been reestablished and, and it's just worked out perfectly. Because I did what they, I had become willing to do whatever they, she wanted me to do. I took nothing for granted not that I had the right to see my kids. Yeah. I forfeited that right. You know, I disappeared out of their life for three and a half years. And it was given back to me. Because I had made those amends and I kept paying those, and I paid that, that uh, uh, child support off, you know. And we have a beautiful relationship today. Just beautiful. They've been out here to see my son on a visit. We've been to dinner with them, and and, and it's just a wonderful deal. But I came willing to do exactly what they told me to do and have that. And my kids and I have a wonderful relationship. In fact, they uh, there were two things about that, making those amends. Because I think the, the men's with the with your families become the toughest. Because you've got to follow through on what you say. If I would have written that letter and paid the child support for a few months and then quit, nothing changed. Nothing changed. I'm still not paying the child support. In fact, there's more damage created by doing that. Once you start those amends and you quit, or you promise, you know, you, you, you commit to them that you're going to, you're going to do this or do that, and then you don't do it. You haven't made amends. Nothing changed, you know. And so that's why we pray in six and seven for change to take place, and then we exercise that change in step nine and show that it has taken place. They're no longer that same person that couldn't keep our word, that couldn't do what we said we were going to do. We're going to do that, and and, and I had uh, made amends to all my family, and I had it. My dad wrote a journal, and in that journal, he started when he was 21 years old, and uh, just a young man, he started writing this journal. He wrote poetry, and he wrote short stories, and he wrote just random thoughts that he had. And it was a big, thick thick book by the time he was 60, and uh, he went and had it, had it printed up and gave all of his kids a copy of it, called it his black book. He kept it in a big black book, and uh, I got my copy of it in 1976. And 1976, I was doing a little drinking, you know, and I travel around a little bit when I drink, and I, I don't know what happened to my book; it just got lost. And so every time I'd see my folks, my dad would say, "Where's your copy of the black book?" And I said, "It's in Seattle, you know, or it's in Las Vegas, or it's in Reno. It could have been in any." One of six western states. I have no idea where where it was, you know. And but I'm not going to tell him I lost my book, you know. And uh, after I'd made those amends to my wife, uh, and I'd call the kids at Christmas time. The following February, which was Valentine's Day, I got a Valentine's delivered to my office from my mom, and it was big. She made a bunch of fudge and a bunch of goodies and. 
I'm excited. I'm opening it up at the office, and at the bottom of the, this this Valentine's is my copy of the book. And there's a letter from my dad, paper clipped on top of it. And it said, Dear John, <laughs> we have known where your black book was for years. <laughs> And what had happened, my, my ex-wife had it. She had it. And he said, after you got sober, we asked her if you could have your copy of the book. And she said, that son of a bitch is never going to get it. It's the only thing he's got that's decent to pass on to his kids. And I'm going to make sure they get it because he'll lose it. And uh, no way I was getting that book. She was going to pass it on to my kids. Well, he said, when we went up there to see her uh, last week, see the grandkids, what they were doing, before we left, she said, wait just a minute. She ran up to her bedroom. She came down. She gave me the book. And she said, here, I think John needs this. He can probably give it to his kids. And I got my book back. And then I had the, the opportunity to pass that on to my kids. When just a few years prior to that, no way. She ain't going to give that back to me. I'm not responsible enough to do it. She was right, you know. But that whole thing has been restored, even to the point where she's giving me back stuff that I didn't even know she had, you know. <laughs> didn't even know she had. Because I did exactly what y'all told me to do. Exactly. In fact, they invited me to go to my son's high school graduation. And they said, you're coming to his graduation. I said, yeah, I'll come up. And they said, well, you can stay with us. I said, I probably won't. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. My folks live about 40 miles away. So I flew in and uh, uh, went by to see the kids. And we visited. And I'm going to go to his graduation Friday. I went in there on Thursday. And she says to me, before I'm leaving to go down to my folks, she said, listen. She said, she's real Al-Anon. I mean, she's real out. She says, we've got a family videotape where I've taken and spliced, you know, all the dance lessons and the Little League baseball and the, and the bicycle races and all the, all the stuff they did when they were kids, Pop Warner football. I've, I've got all those things put on one family tape, family campouts where we can do that. But we have nothing in, on that family tape from you. So what I want you to do, I want you to record something on a videotape that you remember about the kids. And then I'm going to include it in our family tape. And I said, oh, that'll be great. So I left and I'm driving down to my folks and then I start thinking. My first drunk was the day my daughter was born. And I don't remember one event that happened to my kids when they were little growing up. And I was there for five, six years. I don't remember one birthday. I don't remember one Christmas. I don't remember any, any, anything we did as a family. Just don't remember. And I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to say about... I don't remember any of that stuff. And so I go up there on Friday and I see the kids and we go there and she says, did you make the video yet? And every time I go up there, she's wanting to know if I made this video. You know, and I haven't. 
I'm going to leave and come home Monday. Sunday, the kids are coming down to stay with me. And I go pick them up. And she said, have you made the tape? And I thought, i got to tell her. i got to tell her I don't, I don't know what to say. And so I started crying, actually. And she, she sent the kids out of the room. She said, get out of the room. Leave your dad and I alone. <laughs> she, she said, and she said what's, what's the matter? And I told her, I said, I don't remember. I don't remember anything. And she thought for a minute, she jumped up, and she said, wait a minute. And she went back in the room, she came out with like five big photo journals, you know, photo albums. And she said, you don't have any pictures of the kids little, do you? Because when I got divorced, and I, let, I just ran out. Is what happened. I didn't, you know, I had no pictures of the kids when they were little or anything. She had five big photo albums of pictures when the kids, when I was there and, and the kids were growing up. And she said, uh, "Tell you what," she said, "Take these albums with you tonight, and look through there, and maybe when you see a picture, it'll remind you of something that you can talk about on that tape. Because we really want to have you included on that tape for the kids." And then she said, and by the way, she said, I know you don't have any of those pictures. She said, I've got every negative <laughs> filed. <laughs> She's Alan on. <laughs> Organized. She said, take as many of those pictures as you want because I'll make, I got the negatives, I'll make duplicates. So I went home and I went through there and I found some stuff and I remember and I made the video. She gave me her camera. And I made the videotape, and uh, and it was and it ended up great. And I took a bunch of pictures and gave them back to her, and uh, and I all got included. You know, this is from a woman that wasn't going to give me nothing, that called me a son of a bitch just a few years prior to that, and now she's giving me pictures. She's including me in that tape of the kids, and uh, going out of her way. You know. All that stuff, including those pictures, which I never had. I now got. I got pictures of my kids. I never had those. You know, everything's been restored. Now that's been true in every area of my life, because I did whatever you told me to do. I did. You know, I'd made a min I'd made all the financial mints. I owed a Mastercard and Visa and all those people, and it had been ten years since they'd heard from me. You know, I sent Zion's bank letters. I sent them two letters. And they, they never, the second time they responded, they said, we can't find any record of you. We don't know who you are. <laughs> you know? And uh, so then I'm applying for a mortgage. I'm applying for a mortgage. We're buying a house. And they, we fill out a whole bunch of forms. And then the gal says, now, is there any other debt that you haven't told me about? And I said, are there any other payments you have which I, I'm unaware of? So I'm paying my child support. I'm proud of that. That's why I'm paying child support. She said, oh, you've been divorced. I said, yeah. She said, well, we need a copy of your divorce decree. <laughs> I said, why? She said, well, it's policy. We need a copy of the divorce decree. And I said, I don't think I have it. I think I've lost it. I said, I can give you her number. She, you can call her or I can get her to send an affidavit down that I am paying the child support. She says, no, we need the divorce decree. She said, what, where were you divorced? I said, in Utah. She says, we'll write them. We'll write them and get a copy of it. I said, well, let me check. 
before you do that, let me check. <laughs> so I went home and pulled out my divorce decree. and uh, Because, see, in the divorce decree, she divorced me for excessive consumption of alcohol. And there was also uh, a note at Zion's Bank that was unsecured <laughs> that I had. They signed a note, they gave you money. And uh, in the divorce decree, it says that I was also responsible for that unsecured debt at Zion's Bank. And I thought, oh, God, this is going to open up a can of worms. So I called my sponsor, out of town. They always go out of town. <laughs> so I called I call the mortgage lady back, and I said, I, I, she, my ex-wife sent me a copy of it. I'll have it in a couple days. He never got back in town. So I'm, I'm, I talked I talk to four guys with long-term sobriety, telling them about this thing and about what had happened with these, these uh, the divorce decree, and they all said, call and withdraw the application. And then go apply somewhere else. And don't tell them about it. You know? One of them was an attorney that had like 15 years sobriety. So just withdraw the application and then go apply somewhere else. And don't tell them you've been divorced. And uh, I was down to the point where I thought, well, I can do that, or I can, what I can do, I'm real good at cutting and pasting. Okay? That's at the very bottom of the divorce decree. Okay? I know how to make a Xerox copy of that last page, cut that part out, put everything back together, make another Xerox copy, and it looked Perfect. Perfect. I'm excited to apply for this thing. So I, the lady's going to pick it up the next day. My sponsor gets back in town. He says, uh, he calls me and says, I, I got like five messages from you. What's going on? I said, well, I, I told him about this deal. And, and I, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've done it. He said, what? And I said, I told him about my cutting and pasting. (laughs) Long pause. He says, how long have you been sober? I've been sober four and a half years. He said, four and a half years? I said, yeah. He said, you're willing to risk four and a half years of sobriety for a goddamn house. That's incredible, John. You're going to risk your sobriety for that house because you're not being honest? I said, what am I going to do? He said, give them the decree. Let them decide what to do. That's not your place. They want all the facts. Give them all the facts. Then they can make the decision based on the facts. So I gave her the the, the real divorce decree, you know. (laughs) Next day she calls and she says, you've been approved. (laughs) I don't know why. You know know what my sponsor said to me when I was standing about cutting and pasting? (laughs) He says, do you know where you learned that? I said, no. He He told me I learned it in the bar. He said, you didn't learn that at your mama's knee. Your mama never taught you how to do that? How to take a document and alter it like that? (laughs) 
I said, no, she never, she never taught me that. <laughs> and he says, you learned that in the bar. He said, you're an alcoholic, man. You said, you got to get away from that old thinking. You know, because that's the way I do stuff when I'm drinking. You know, whatever I need to do to, to manage the situation to get the results that I want. So I just gave them the decree and they approved me, you know. Even though I had gone through the process of making amends, writing Zion's Bank, doing all that stuff, I was scared to death they were going to find out what the deal was and not get, and I wasn't going to get what I wanted. And uh, so I needed to exercise that change, which means I gave them the divorce decree. And all those amends, you know, that, I, that you come willing to make are going to work out the way they're supposed to work out, and they may not all be good. They may not all be good. They may, there may be some prices to pay that you're going to have to pay. You may have to do some jail time. You may have to pay on stuff for years to get paid off. But you're going to have to pay it if you want to stay sober. And that, all of a sudden, those once you start making those amends, that's when the promise is going to start to come true in your life. Because you, My sponsor looked at all those financial amends and said, he turned over and says, you can't make those. I said, good. He said, <laughs> he said, no. It's not that you're not going to make them. You're going to pay on them. But it's impossible. I mean, I, I was making four bucks an hour. You know, and I had thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And he said, there's no way you can pay that off at that rate. So what you're going to do is you're going to turn those amends over to God. And God's the one that's going to give you the money to pay those off. And as long as you're taking the money God gives you and paying your amends... It'll continue to come in. But if you take that money and you spend it on yourself, and your selfish, self-centered desires, the money's going to dry up. Financial amends are the easiest thing to make. You just got to make them. You don't have to worry about how am I going to get the money to make them. That's not the point. The money is going to be given to you. God will give you the money. Your job is to take the money and pass it on to those you've already taken it from. Easiest thing in the world to make amends. Toughest things to make amends to your family. Because that amends is going to go on forever. And you're going to pay that. And you're going to change and you're going to change that behavior and do the right thing for a long, long time. And it's a wonderful experience. And all the promises are going to come true in life is going to be going to be great. <laughs> the uh, I made those amends, I'm making those amends. And I'm married, living in Dallas, got that mortgage. Things are going good. And uh There are some things that happen in sobriety, and they warn you about it at the very beginning. They, uh, they tell us that in our adventures before and after, which means you're going to have some adventure after you get here. <laughs> it's going to be a little scary after you get sober. And in, uh, in October of 1988, October 1988, I'd been asked to go over to Shreveport and speak at the Tri-State Conference in Shreveport, Louisiana. It's going to be Saturday night speaker. I, I got up Friday morning, beautiful day. I get ready to go to the conference in Shreveport. I'm going to drive to Shreveport, take the day off, drive over there. So I come out of my house in North Dallas. I got that mortgage on. And I walk down past the pool and the, and the spa, and I go into the garage, and I get in my German car, and I'm leisurely going to drive over to Shreveport. 
Some big shot. Take the day off. My wife can't go. She's going to have to fly over that night. She gotta work. She's not a big shot. Not a big shot. <laughs> She's going to come over that night after work, fly over. So I drive over to Shreveport, and I get over there <clears throat> and I pick her up Friday. I get up Saturday. I'm supposed to speak Saturday night. I have this beautiful picture of successful sobriety, right? I'm going to talk. I get up Saturday morning, and I'm, I am screwed. I'm in more pain than I've ever been in in my sobriety. I just want to die. I don't want to be there. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to die. I don't really want... I just kind of want to wake up dead. You know? I just want to wake up somebody else. I don't want to be what I am, you know? I just want to be somewhere else, somebody else doing something else. I'm just in, in a lot of pain. I gave a terrible talk. Just a terrible talk over in Shreveport. In fact, a Catholic priest that talks quite a bit was speaking over there. And I saw him six months later, and he said, we were having dinner Friday night. He said, man, you gave a terrible talk in Shreveport. So <laughs> what's wrong? I said, you'll hear about it tonight. You know? So I got back, and I called my sponsor Sunday when I got back in town and met with him Monday. And I found out that it takes me one day to screw up my life and a year to accept it. <laughs> That's what happened. Because what, what, my pain came from October of 87. Now it's October of 88. And in 87, you remember in October, they had a stock market crash. And uh, the stock market dropped 700 points, which is a, that was about 30% of the value in one day. It dropped 500 points on Monday, 250 points on Friday. So in two days, it lost about a third of its value, which would have been like, I mean, we've lost a lot now, but that would have been like going from 11,000 to six, you know? And uh, it was pretty devastating. And I lost a little money when this market, I didn't have a lot of money in the market, you know, but I lost a little bit. And if I would have called my sponsor and said to my sponsor, you know, here's what happened, here's what I lost, what, what should I do? And if I'd have done what he did, because he had a lot of money in the market, a lot. And what he did was nothing. He did nothing. And by December, it had come back and was ahead of where it was when it fell. Okay? But I didn't do that. I didn't call my sponsor. I had to figure it out for myself. <laughs> didn't ask anybody, what should I do? I just figured, i gotta, I got to take care of this. So I sold the, the little stock I had left, what, what stock was there for a little bit of money, and I started trading stock options, which, for those of you who don't know, is a very high-risk venture. It's gambling a lot. And uh, and I proceeded over that next year to lose about times the money I lost in that one day. I mean, there's a lot of money now. It's a lot of money. Oh, and one other thing I forgot to tell you. Uh, the, the money I lost... Oh, wasn't mine. <laughs> well, it kind of was, okay? The, the, I signed one of those notes at the bank. They gave me this money, you know? And uh, so I got this money. Now I don't know who's got it, you know? So I had this I had this unsecured note at the bank. I had this money I'd borrowed. I had thousands and thousands of dollars I'd borrowed at the bank, unsecured, that I owed on a note. And it was coming due. And I'm in a lot of pain over this unsecured note because I don't have the money. I don't have anywhere close to the money to pay that off. I'm just screwed. And one other thing, nobody knows what I'm doing. 
Nobody. My wife doesn't know. My wife thinks we're doing fine. She doesn't know about this unsecured note. You know, that I got this huge debt over here. My sponsor doesn't know what I'm doing. Nobody I sponsor knows what I'm doing. Nobody knows what I'm doing. A ton of secrets. So I'm really a basket case. And I'm nine years sober. Eight or nine years sober at that time. You know? And, and I got a ton of secrets. Nobody knows what I'm doing. And I'm petrified. And me and my sponsor laid everything out for him. First time I told anybody about what was going on. And he said, boy, he said, uh, that's sick. <laughs> he said, have you been drinking? I said, no. He said, I said, that's amazing what willpower will do. You know? So, so he said, all I know is what, so I had to write an inventory the last year. Now, this isn't a fourth step. I'm not going to go back and write what happened to me when I was four that makes me buy stock options when I'm 40. You know, that's not what I'm doing here, okay? This is the last year, just the last year inventory of what happened the last year, what transpired the last year, what were my actions the last year. And uh, so I did that one night, met with him Tuesday, and uh, read him the inventory. And he says, okay, you're going to have to go home and pray to change, and then you have to make those amends. And so I went home Tuesday night, and I made an appointment with my wife for Thursday. Uh, she says, you want an appointment? I said, yeah, I need an appointment Thursday. <laughs> eight o'clock. Eight o'clock Thursday, I want an appointment with you. See, I wanted to make it eight o'clock because I wanted to do it after she'd eaten. Because I, I didn't want her hungry. Okay? <laughs> and I thought, I'll do it before it gets too late because I don't want her tired. Okay? And I know she's going to get angry. And then I figured I'd be lonely, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I met her at eight o'clock and I laid everything out for her. Told her everything. About all this, she cried a little bit. She said, "My God, what are we going to do? We got all this debt. What are we going to do?" And I, she talked to her sponsor, and I we had to go to the bank, talk to the bank, make amends at the bank, and uh, everything would have been fine, with the exception of one thing. I didn't quit doing it. Okay? And uh, what was funny is '89 was just the opposite of '88. In '89, everything I did worked. I made a fortune in 1989. In fact, June 8th. Oh, God, I love June 8th. <laughs> June 8th of 1989. I made more money on June 8th than I've made in 10 years. You know, it was, it was wonderful on June 8th. Now, you got a problem. you got a problem when you're doing that stuff. Because no matter whether you win or lose, you got to tell them. Okay? Because if you lose, you got all the state you got to tell them about. But when you win that big... Then you gotta tell them. Because you can't, because what happens, you get 10, 1099, they, you're paying your taxes, and your wife says, How much money did we make? <laughs> Where did you get that money? <laughs> you know? So you gotta tell them. So I'm screwed again, even though I've got all this money. So that was on Tuesday, June 8th, and uh, she was in Chicago. So I went and paid everything off. I paid off all the debt, I paid off uh, everything we had. And took a whole bunch of money and put it in a checking account. And put it all in a manila envelope. And then I picked her up at the airport. She came back on Saturday from Chicago. And picked her up at the airport. And we went home. And I said, honey, let's go into the living room. I have something I want to share with you. <laughs> we share with her. So we then sat down. She said, what's wrong? She got this pale look on her face. And I said, well, honey, I just want you to know, Tuesday, God told me to buy. <laughs> and I 
handed her the envelope, and she opened the envelope and saw all the paid receipts and, and the money. She said, my God. You know, I said, you told me I bought all this stuff and worked out and we paid it all off and life is wonderful. And uh, she cried. She said, I'm supposed to leave you if you do that. And I said, well, that's why I put the money in the checking account, you know. <laughs> well, I know she can't leave, you know. They can't leave anything. Like and everything would have been really great. Would have been great. Except for one thing. I didn't quit doing it, you know. And, uh, and by the way, I don't want anybody to think that I got a lot of money. Okay? Because, as I said, I didn't quit doing it. I was glad now. And in August, uh, <laughs> well, she found out I was still doing it. I'm not supposed to be doing it. So she, uh, we separated and then we got divorced 61 days later. And, uh, and I made a lot of money in August, too, by the way. In fact, I made more money in August than I did in June. And, uh, but then I lost it later on. So it doesn't really matter, does it? But uh, we we got we got divorced and and it's very painful. Now, the interesting thing about it is, if at any point in time during that whole year and a half, I'd call my sponsor and told him what I'm doing, would have all been over. I never once in that year. You think I ever called my sponsor? Let me tell you what my schedule was. I would get up at five in the morning. Because I got three newspapers I got to read in case something happens. I want to be current with the news, so I make my trades. So I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm reading the newspapers. I get to the office at eight o'clock because I got three brokers I got to call. I got to call these brokers, place my orders for the brokers. Market opens at eight thirty. By ten o'clock, I'm like a drunk needs a drink. I mean, I'm pacing the floor at the office. I've got to find out what's happening. I don't want to be there. I'm just nervous. I'm restless. I leave. Ten o'clock, I'm out of there. I go home, turn on the TV because I'm watching CNN, FNN, headline news. You know, that little banner goes across the bottom of the TV saying, "See what the." Market's doing there. I'm talking to my stockbroker on the phone all day long, watching in case something happens. I'm going to make a trade. And uh, my wife comes home. Wife comes home about five o'clock. She wants to go out to dinner. I can't. I'm tired. Let's just order out. Have them bring it in. Let's order out. Bring food in here. You know. So we order out. Say, I can't. Can't leave. I got to watch CNN, FNN, headline news in case something happens. Make my trade. You know. <laughs> and that's hard to do because she knows if I'm watching those channels, I'm in the market. Not supposed to be in the market. Shouldn't be in there. So I gotta wait for her to go to the bathroom and then change that channel, you know. <laughs> Finally, she goes to bed at 10 o'clock. Now I can watch, stay, I stay up till 2 o'clock watching CNN, FNN, headline news, in case I'm having to make my trade. So I go to bed at 2 o'clock, get up at 5, start my day all over. I'm nine years sober and can see nothing bizarre about that behavior. <laughs> I figure I'm just a hardworking guy. You know, weekend. I can't even do the weekend. Weekend comes. She invites friends over to lay around the pool and barbecue. I'm out there ten minutes. It's hot. Now the market's not even open, but I got to go in the house, watch CNN, FNN, headline news in case some news happens. I need to know about it and make my trades on Monday. You know, can't even. I'm total, total occupied with that thing. And uh, if I'd have called my sponsor any time and said, he says, "How'd you do today? What'd you do?" And I'd have told him anything what I'd done. It would all stop. He'd say, you're crazy. You'd stop. Never told anybody. If I'd have told anybody, I'd sponsor. Let me tell you what I, let me tell you what I did. I got the 5 o'clock day. Read three newspapers. Talked to three stockbrokers. Made my trades. Left the office early. I lost everything. My sponsor, when I got divorced, he found out. My wife told me I was a compulsive gambler. And I talked to my sponsor. I said, do you think I'm a compulsive gambler? He said, I don't know. He said, why don't you go home and do this? Maybe he's got a problem with the market. I don't know. Go home and get a piece of paper out, draw a line down the center of it, 
And on the left-hand side, write everything that buying stock options has done for you. And then on the right-hand side, put what it's cost you. And maybe you can learn something. So I don't know when I did that. I had one thing on the left-hand side. I'd made a little bit of money. That was it. I didn't even get to keep it. Made a little bit of money. On the left hand, on the right hand side, what did it cost me? Well, I lost my my family, lost my marriage, lost my house, lost my career. They fired me at work because I wasn't ever there. I leave, I go home, watch CNN, FN, and headline news. You know? I'm sales manager for the second largest sales unit in my company, and it's a $22 billion company out of New York. And, and they said, you're never here. I'm supposed to be helping these guys, and he's gone. So they fired me, you know. And, and they should have. They, they kept me around a lot longer than I'd have kept me around, you know. Uh, just can't. I lost it all. Lost all my money. Lost my house. Lost my marriage. Lost my serenity. Lost my sanity. I lost everything but my sobriety. And it was next because of the secrets. You know, nobody knew. Nobody knew. See, step 10. You don't fall very far in one day. You really don't. But go a year without reviewing your activities and you're way off the beam. You're way off the beam. If I call my sponsor on a regular basis and tell him what I did that day. See, because in step 10, we review the first nine steps. You take step 10, you're actually taking the first nine steps because it says continue to take personal inventory. Well, before you can take an inventory, what do you got to do? You got to do steps one, two, and three. Then you take your inventory, which is step four, and then when done with it, you got to give it away so you tell your sponsor about it. And then, when wrong, promptly admit it. you got to make amends. Well, before you make those amends, you got to change. So you got to take six and seven to change. And then you make your amends in step nine. So when you do step ten, you're redoing the first nine steps on a regular basis. And you'll have a lot of protection in doing that. You won't fall very far. Every time I've got in trouble in my sobriety, it's because of step ten and my lack of doing step ten. You can get by with a lot of stuff in sobriety. But if you avoid step 10, like all the steps of you, you're, you're going to have a real problem because the stuff's going to back up on you. You're going to end up with a lot of secrets. You're going to end up with a lot of wreckage of the present. You know? And you're going to have a lot of amends that you can have to finally sit down, get in the position I was in where you're just nuts. And you got to write this stuff down or drink. And it usually happens, by the way, Somewhere between five and ten years. Somewhere between five and ten years is when all that stuff starts to back up on you. You know? And I, most of the time, everybody I sponsor has had to go through something where they're going to have to renew their commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that renewal is going to exhibit itself in step ten, where you're going to start telling your sponsor everything that's going on in your life on a regular basis. You're going to have to start being honest with him and honest with those you work with on a daily basis more than I ever dreamed possible. Or it starts to back up on you. It just starts to back up on you. And it can be an incredible experience in going through that whole process. I learned an awful lot in going through that process. You know, about about what is, what is it going to take to have long-term sobriety in this program. You know? And what it's going to take is, on a daily basis, practicing these principles in all of our affairs. And we'll talk about that next week. Thank you.